Hey, plant friends, we are back. And what a beautiful day it is. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, and it is on this show that I get to bring on super inspiring guests to help us lead more conscious and mindful lives, lives rich in fulfillment and positivity. I've had a few messages this week about the article in Nourish Magazine where I was featured as someone in the in the plant-based world, plant-based community to look at, to look to for advice. Very much appreciated that write-up and I'm humbled to be collaborating with the magazine. If you are from Australia and want a new magazine that is full of plant-based information, including articles, product reviews, recipes, then I guarantee you will like Nourish. You can check them out at nourishmagazine.com.au. Once again, as I've said before, I am not paid a dime by the magazine, but I genuinely love collaborating with them. And I think their content is very helpful for the community. It's well aligned with the plant-based lifestyle message that Plant Proof is all about. I'm sure most of you have heard of Nike and Victoria's Secret. Well, today's guest, Joe Holder, is one of the head trainers at Nike and personally trains a number of the Victoria's Secret models. Tough job. Joe, a college graduate from the Ivy League University of Pennsylvania, has an incredible outlook on training to get the most out of not only your body and physical condition, but also your mind. For anyone interested in training, plant-based nutrition, this is certainly an episode you are going to need a notepad for. And more than likely, you'll, you'll want to come back to it and listen again a second, third time. We dive into Joe's story and how he developed a love for health. What is the Ocho system? And his thoughts around training type, volume, recovery, and so much more. Okay, friends, I'll see you on the other side. Give it up for Joe Holder. Joe Holder, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks for having me, dog. Appreciate you. It's uh, super cool to actually have you here in Sydney. I think we spoke a little while back, and yeah. and I was I was in New York, I think, at that stage. But we, we were going to try and connect, but it's worked out nicely that that you're here this this week. Yeah, I came to you instead of the other way around. Perfect. <laughs> so tell me, uh, first time in Australia. First time in Australia. Uh, Sydney is quite the experience, but, uh, yeah, I was in LA for like 12 days and I made the trip down since it was a little closer. One of my good friends was a fellow Nike master trainer, Kirsty God. So, so she kind of dragged me down here and I've been here for about five days before I have to head back to LA and then eventually New York. Okay. And what, what are your first impressions of the place? It's like a better LA. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that too loudly. <laughs> got to whisper it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's got a great food scene. There's definitely beautiful women here. That's for sure. There's just the beach and then it's seclusion and it's summer. So you really can't be mad. It's got the good vibes. Yeah. Super great vibes. Yeah. I mean, we might need to get you a job with Tourism Australia. By yeah, the time. Yeah, <laughs> sign me to a deal. <laughs> but that's uh, that's usually how I describe it. Like if if someone in the States particularly is like, hey, tell me what's what's it like to live in Sydney? I sort of describe it as as the LA of, of Australia, yeah. similar sort of weather and, and, and I guess lifestyle. A lot of people here like to be outdoors and exercising. So they do have those similarities. Yeah. Yeah. Facts. How, how long are you here for? Uh, I got here the 29th. I leave the third. 
that I'm in LA, third to the seventh. So here, I guess that's like five days. Okay, cool. Days. What have you been up to? I, I know I saw you training at 98 Riley Street. How have you been sort of filling in your days? I mean, my thing is, is like, as weird as it sounds, I often vacation to do nothing. And it wears people out because like I, you know, I, I have conversations with people I'm like, oh yeah, like I'm just not ready to be around people right now. And they're like, what are you talking about? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm totally fine. Like I just need to chill. So my days are so crazy in New York and just generally through the year. This is probably the first vacation that I've ever had. So for most people, like I don't work, I have a contemporary like work lifestyle. So for most people, I guess when they vacation, they try to like get work in leisure. But luckily, just due to the job that I've had, like some of my work are some of the best leisure events you could think of. So whether that be like Super Bowl or stuff like that. So my deal is when I travel, I just want to scope out the scene, but I also just want to chill. I want to get my mind right. I want to think, I want to ruminate. I don't, I'm not the type of guy that like, yeah, yeah. So, so you don't sort of have the pressure of, I've got to see this, do that. No, I don't care. Like, Sometimes when you do a holiday like that, you almost come home more tired and stressed than Yeah, I don't need that. Were. <laughs> yeah. So I've been, uh, what have I done? It's been pretty good though. I mean, I've been, uh, I went to Bondi beach, uh, Tamarama beach, I guess it's called. Yeah, Tamarama. You know, the, um, the nickname for that place is Glamorama. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that actually. I can see that. <laughs> Uh, 98 Riley Street was dope. The Bunker Gym was a nice one too. I'm going to check out the Botanical Gardens today and in the harbor. I'll probably run that like Bondi to Bronte, I guess, Yeah, in the morning. Which is about, about, what's that like? I think it's got to be like three, three or three and a half kilometers, maybe both ways. So yeah, it's, it's like I got to do it a few times. It's yeah. not that far, but it's uh, it, like, I guess in the morning it looks super serene. So I want to kind of get there before everybody else yeah, is yeah, there, yeah. Like, sit on the rocks. It's beautiful. Bit. It's 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 hard to describe. You really have to see it, right? Yeah. But yeah, I've just been chilling. I needed a break. Yeah, cool. Have you had, you've had some good food while you've been here? Oh, uh, yeah. I went to... Uh, I want, I've been to Bill's a lot. It's like yeah, Bill's, Jack's wife, Bill's Rita, super, Sydney. Super popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yuri's or Yully's? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that in Surrey Hills? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, saying, I've been mainly eating in Surrey Hills. Uh, I want to check out Orchard Street today. Everybody keeps saying yeah, cool. there. Yeah. Um, there's one in Bondi. There's one in, I think, Paddington. There's a few yeah, around. Like yeah. Bondi Whole Foods or something. People Bondi Whole Foods. Yeah. So I'm going to check out a few more spots today. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good, man. And, yeah. and, you're obviously you train you train most days whilst you're whilst you're yeah, in here and even in New York. Like I mean, I probably train more on vacation. I like treat it like a training camp because I could properly structure it. Like a lot of the times the stress of just living in New York is kind of enough. So I don't I mix in what I call like to call like exercise snacks when I'm mainly in New York and I have like some of my hard training days, but when I'm away and I can kind of structure my days around these longer training periods and time so I can like get real workouts in and then get a nap, make sure I'm eating good, et cetera. It's actually like less onerous than it would be to get workouts in back home just because all the other augmented stress. So yeah, I mean, I'm focused back on like just putting a little muscle because after these marathons, I got super skinny and then uh, probably just try to hit a fast mile time and then start training again for the marathon in Berlin in September. I think I'm going to do Yeah. Well, we've, um, we've got enormous territory to, to cover today. <laughs> You know, I, I've, I've been following you for a while and, you know, I know I sort of know loosely what you're up to and yeah, yeah. you've, you've got an incredible resume, but you've also got the, the physique and the, the mindset to, to really back up what you're speaking about. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to sort of diving deep into this and discovering how you initially first found a passion for healthy living yeah, yeah. and what, 
what healthy living actually means to you. I want to I want to go through this these things that you're talking about now around training and around nutrition and what your mindset and sort of principles are and why that's different to some of the other principles that that may be out there. Some of the common sort of training methods that we see. Yeah, maybe just to paint the picture, a good place to start is. To wind back, you you grew up in New Jersey, is that right? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, South Orange, New Jersey. I was actually premature, so I was born in Montana randomly. Um, and then I'm one of seven kids, so my dad's kind of like a holistic, integrative doctor. So he's an MD. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he's not a nat- he's not a naturopath. So he actually went to like a legit medical school. So he's an MD, um, and he just combines like integrative and um, like standardized and alternative practices for kind of best results. So I, and my mom's an immigrant from Trinidad. And I grew up in this, this household where activity was key, both like pushing the mind and the body was super important. It was probably just a way for my dad to like keep control over us too, because he also coached me growing up, especially with sports. So all the stuff that's in now, like, you know, my dad has his own supplement kind of cabinet and at the crib because the doctor's office is attached to the crib. So I just grew up around all this stuff. Like my mom grew on wheatgrass. She cooked for us. Like we composted yeah. in the back. So this is not the standard American no, sort of family. No, 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 <laughs> at all, at all. So this is like yeah. before their time. Yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. yeah. So people like, you know, like, what are the holders up to? And to me, this, that, this was just like, this was just living. Like, you know, when we would get punished, we'd have to go run around the block, like stuff like that. Like we had to meditate as kids, like uh, yeah, wow. pr- probably in the more so kind of, I mean, I guess Christian centered faith, but definitely like multi-faith kind of like esoteric practice. So my parents just made sure we were exposed to a lot of things and critical thinking was super important. It all kind of started with mindset and food and, and uh, just kind of like fulfilling your potential also through activity, but mainly also making sure that you knew to give back to community, that you knew the proper ways to think and you just found ways to level up. So my dad was never really one for the status quo and neither was my mother. Um, and none of us, for lack of a better term, really turned out to be like fuck ups. So it was yeah. pretty special. So do you, do you sort of look back on that and think that, I guess, compared to an average family or a child, you were a lot more conscious of, of certain aspects of life, important aspects of life? Yeah. I mean, for better, for worse, I guess that was the, that, I mean, I was a pretty like, probably like a little, little anxious, riled up kid because so my thing was, was we, my family had us doing so much and we were probably a little bit more ahead of our time, but I was also super good at sports. So I was super competitive and, and into that. And it was a soft in a situation where like, I always knew that I could be better, but I didn't know how like good I was. So that was probably a little bit of the drawback for me growing up, but definitely super conscious ahead of our time. Um, and for me, like kind of getting into where I am now is my dad and mom had a decision to have seven kids. Like at the end wow. of the day, if my dad, if my parents had less children, my dad probably be, you know, a household name similar to the Pollins and the Bitmans. He just made the decision like to go after his, his family first. So my deal is I just kind of see this now as like a full actualization of kind of like my dad's not necessarily dream, but to bring his his methodologies a little bit more into quote unquote, the mainstream through, you know, what I could do. Cause he's, you know, my first, my first teacher. So I just want to keep building That's that. so cool. Yeah. It's nutty. So it's cool that you, you, you can see it like that. So you can look back and sort of understand and grasp that this opportunity that you have is very much due to the, some of the sacrifices that your parents made. Yeah. Facts. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned that you sort of had this this real potential from an athletic point of view. Yeah. What what sort of sports or, or training or what, what were you interested in as a kid? 
I mean, what I was like, interested in versus what I had to do. <laughs> uh, I mean, I did three sports growing up. I did football, basketball, track. Was pretty solid in all of them, but definitely dabbled in a lot of different disciplines growing up. My mom was a yoga teacher. So like she just had her certification. So did a little bit of that. My parents made me do like ballet, maybe do tap dance. Like did a lot. So of, you were just moving. Yeah, we were moving. I can't say I was very good at tap dance, but I liked it. But it was it was definitely different to kind of like push me to try different disciplines. You know, nationally ranked in track growing up, you know, uh, varsity on, you know, basketball and football and whatever. You talk know, talk to me through nationally ranked in, yeah, yeah. In, in, in track. For listeners who may not sort of know how that works, uh, of what, how does that work and how do you get nationally ranked and what did you have to yeah. do? So for track and field, all right. So for track and field growing up, you typically had, as kids, you typically were part of clubs in, in America. So when you're part of clubs, basically, there are two distinct organizations, USATF, which is the USA Track and Field, and an AAU, which I think is an amateur athletic union. And they basically had, it's like a farm system where you had to go from like state to regional to then like the junior Olympic national level. So for me, you know, going up through that system, probably until I got to high school or so, like I was perennially at the junior Olympics for my respective disciplines. So wow. typically high jump. Well, yeah, high jump. Yeah, high jump. Uh you know, like the 1500 and um, and then I did some multi-event stuff. I fell out of love with track just because, to be honest, I was button heads with my dad and, you're, you know, you're going through whatever you're going through as a teenager. Focused just on basketball and football for the most part in high school. I went to St. Peter's Prep, this, you know, very good parochial all-boys school in Jersey City. So I had to travel every day to school, which was super big for me. And, and a lot of this... I look back and while it aggravated me, I understand why my dad did it. So he he would implement like micro doses of stress for me to get used to like what it's to, like to live to in become a real world. resilient. Like, yeah. Like become a man, like yeah. not even like tox, toxic masculinity stuff, but just strategic rearing practices that get your child mm-hmm. used to what it's like. So things do not, not making everything too easy. Yeah. Like have to get up five thirty six a.m. It's an hour and a half commute to school every day. You still got to. And what, and what's funny is my mom luckily is still like packing me salads and stuff to take to school, but then still have practice after school, still have to commute home, still have to then do your homework, start all over mm-hmm. again. So you were eating different foods to some, like most of the other kids at class and stuff? Yeah, yeah. My yeah, my my diet was super, super on point. So then in high school, f- football, basketball, excelled in both. Was uh, interested in playing both sports for some smaller schools, but I then decided just to pursue football at the University of Pennsylvania um, in in Philadelphia. So it's part of like the Ivy League, which in the, in America and I guess worldwide, it's like a set of prestigious in, yeah, in, institutions. Yeah, yeah. Is that, um, is that Penn State? No. no uh, so sorry, Penn State's a different university. So, yeah. So Penn State's a different university, University of Pennsylvania. It's like actually a sore spot for the school, but you well, they're like rivalry. It's, it's a rivalry because like UPenn is like a really good school and Penn State's like the state school. Okay. So we literally yeah, have shirts that say like not but it's probably like whatever top 15 school in the world top 10 in the u.s and then there i just decided to play football i dealt with a lot of injuries while playing there um and this is probably where a lot i guess more of a plant-based lifestyle started to come in like doctors couldn't really tell me why my body wasn't healing so my sophomore year is supposed to be my year hurt my ankle really bad I was probably should listen to my dad, but I was a little bit too hard headed, try to come back too soon. And then both the stressors I was taking on emotionally and physically but with the sport and also just dealing with school, my body really wasn't healing and I had to miss a year. So mentally, like at those, those 
sort of years of your life, you were putting yourself under too much pressure, do you think? Yeah. I mean, you're 19, you're what, what, 18, 19 year old kid. You're going, you're, um, I'm leaving home. I'm going to college. You're putting trust in a coaching establishment that at the end of the day, really, they're, they're just looking to win. So you're still kind of disposable to them. And we, were you in that system of like college, because college basketball and college football, for those who, who listeners may be from Australia or not from America, it's, it's huge. Yeah. yeah like yeah. it's, 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 as bigger, sometimes bigger than the the professional league, right? Yeah. So, so like, were w- w- were you was your sort of goal to go professional, or were you what was what were your aims? I mean, the Ivy League's a little bit. Ivy League gets talent, but it probably talent that matures a little bit slower, or those that are a little bit more academically gifted too. So even if you can't go pro, you went to an Ivy League school, so in some senses you are kind of set for. So a you got some path. other opportunities. Yeah, but. So, I mean, there are some of us that would like to go pro. I mean, I was exploring it, but just injuries just didn't really work out for me that way. And then like mentally, I probably just wasn't in a proper place to be able to pursue that. So you can't, I have some buddies that, you know, good friends of mine that I went to school with that are, that are playing a professionally American football. But I was probably just, my body's probably better made out for basketball than it is football, American basketball. But yeah, that ankle injury basically... I had to take a year off and totally, you know, battling depression, had to reevaluate with myself and my dad, like the best way we're just going to get back. Some doctors said I want to be able to play again. Others just couldn't figure out what was up. And we realized, and this is kind of when the Ocho system or whatever was made, it was like we kind of realized that my emotional state was hindering my body's natural healing. So I worked back with my my dad and we set up a plan basically to totally reevaluate what it was that we were doing. So both in a sense of fixing my physical, but also my emotional. It was one of the hardest things that I ever did. And then, of course, with just the standard rehab stuff and working back with the doctors, uh, I had uh, had to get on like a bone stimulator and they kind of more so finally figured out what was going on. And I was able to come back, luckily, and play again. Um, but then I broke my leg again my last year, my senior year. Like a, a physical contact injury? Yeah, so I got... In, what position were you? I was a wide receiver, so I caught the passes. And, and much love to the quarterback on this play. It was my buddy, uh, Andrew, and much love to him. His, my nickname for him was Sinister just because he always had like this furrowed brow. <laughs> much love to him, but he made the wrong read on this play. It was double slants. I'll never forget it. We're playing William and Mary. It was a double slant play and just made the wrong read. So he threw me the rock and I had a linebacker hit me low and another linebacker and, another, and a safety hit me high, but my foot was planted. So basically my leg kind of just, it broke. Like I got hit. Leg popped. I thought I was all right for a second. I tried to run. I felt it pop again. Went in, got x-rays. Doctor comes in. I could tell by the look on his face. He was like, Joe, I know you battled through so much, but like your leg's broken. You're probably out for the year. I'm crushed. I was on the cover of the program this game. Like it was a pretty big game. And uh, I was like, I'm going to find a way to come back. I think it was my girlfriend's birthday at the time. And I was supposed to go to New York later to see her. And that didn't happen because I couldn't even walk, but whatever. Um, that never worked out. Great girl, it never worked out. Um, but anyway, then I sat back and was like, you know what? I, I learned from this lesson when I hurt my ankle previously. I'm not going to let this get me down. I'll be back in four weeks. So this one, Twitter was still kind of big. I called my shot. I was like, I'm going to be back. And they were like, there's no there's no way you, you're going to be able to do this. I was like, guys, like, I'm just going to put this what, to the what, test. what part of your leg was broken? You know? So I broke my fibula. I had a... Okay. I had a uh, what they call a butterfly fracture in my fibula. So you had to go into like a moon boot or one of those. Yeah, boots I had to go into the boots. And they typically, for something like that, it's typically for the most part, I was probably told a prognosis of like eight to 12 weeks. So it would have been, been the season. 
I was like, I'll find a way to come back. So again, I went back to the drawing board and basically took it from like best practices and stuff that like may work and it's stuff that's like unlikely to work. So I cooked up again with my dad, like this bone healing diet. I then made, I was super big into meditation. So I did at the time just basic meditation and like chakra meditation. And then, yeah, I was like eating super strategically. And of course, then doing all the rehab stuff and then trying my best to just work with pain management from like a mental state. And luckily I can't, I started practicing again in about four weeks and I was able to play again that year. And then I was like, you know what? Like maybe I'm onto something with this, with this. Well, your your coaches and like the, the rehab staff must've been pretty impressed on what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it was just like, he's a tough son of a bitch. Like that's, that's how they look at it. And, and uh, I mean, cause I dealt with so many injuries in college, like they knew I would put in the effort, but it's those other things that kind of get you over the top. So from there, I was like, there just has to be better ways to approach health and healing and overall wellness was still done through the lens of kind of sport and performance. Okay. I wanted, I want to delve into the Ocho yeah, yeah, system sure. in a bit, but you mentioned then that that was around the time where you looked at your diet. Yeah. So what, I guess, what was your diet like? When, when did you sort of make this change to a, a plant-based style diet? I mean, I, I like to say like my, my diet probably was always it wasn't meat free. It was always relatively plant-based. Like that's just how my mom kind of cooked, but you know, it, it was definitely a situation where like meat was still involved and definitely not every meal, but probably every dinner, give or take growing up. And, but then at school, I just like my last year and I was trying to just heal my body. My thing was like, how could I just get more nutrient dense foods in, into my body? So the situation of when I was often low, when I was looking at a lot of this like bone healing kind of processes, a lot of it had to do with just like nutrient dense, plant based foods, well timed anti inflammatory stuff, whether whatever, ginger, turmeric. That's when like chia seeds were still hot in the States. So it was just a situation where I was like, if I'm at a school oftentimes where I now have to go and buy my own stuff, and I know that the food that's being provided to me at the school isn't of the highest quality, especially when it comes to the meat, how can I? basically eat to enhance my healing. And a lot of that had to do with just cutting out meat. It wasn't even on purpose. For me, it was more just including other food sources that seem to have an increased link to healing. Instead of. Instead of. So it wasn't like, you know what, I'm no longer going to eat meat. It was just more so of me trying to get all this other stuff Moving your calories to more nutrient dense. Yeah. And then graduating school, like I didn't need to be that big anymore. I'm, I'm like 210 at that time. Now I'm probably closer to like 196. So my deal was, was, uh, then I just wanted to explore, like, can I just start to eat? What was, Then it became, what was the point of me eating meat? So my deal is, and what more it's evolved into now, it's kind of like a controlled asceticism type aspect. My thing is, especially as a black male in America, like poor food, especially in the areas in which a lot of either socioeconomic conditions or minority populations are, is like a form of COINTEL. Like COINTEL is basically this program that was created like during the civil rights to like basically disrupt that movement. So what I kind of look at it now is like food is kind of that first like data point for the cell. And whether we like it or not, like food, just the way it's structured now has a strong impact on, on, on our population. And whether we like it or not, like we often see that junk food and poor meat sources are in areas that are either socioeconomically poor or minority rich. So then my deal becomes to an, ex- to an extent, like the way that I treat my body is a little bit of like a self revolution in the sense of, in a culture that commodifies my health and doesn't take me in the best interest, not just me as a person, but also me generally as part of a larger aggregate population. How can I reclaim my autonomy 
and have these strategic, mindful actions that remind me that I need to take care of myself because nobody will do that for me. So that's kind of what like just like the plant-based gang, plant-based kind of movement is for me. It's just like making sure that I'm light, making sure that I'm treating myself the best because I want to be a vehicle to, you know, for other people, essentially. So I have to make sure that I'm feeling good. And I also need to know that I'm stepping outside of, you know, a culture and food system that doesn't take me into as its first priority. That doesn't take the health of of a nation as its first priority. So that's where it all started. And then it becomes a certain point where you just kind of get known for it and you're in too deep. So <laughs> Before too you know, you're an advocate <laughs> for it. Jeez, you raised some interesting points there, but I think something that comes to mind is what do you think about the fact, I mean, you sound like you were, you've been able to separate your own personal belief and value system from almost what society wants to impart on you. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah for sure. And what do you think is it is that sort of stops other people from from that from from being able to separate yeah their their own thoughts and beliefs from societies that's a great question there's a few things so as an athlete you're always taught introspection so you have to watch film you have to know what you're doing wrong you have somebody on your ass the whole time most people aren't don't grow up in that kind of uh situation so for me whether I like it or not, I'm under a constant microscope of reevaluating what it means to be me. So that's what you're taught through sport. Most people just don't understand that concept. They don't understand what it's like to be critical, to like have a coach, to understand that it's okay to be called out and that you have to do what's necessary to have the best outcomes. And then it becomes a situation where, where like you have to basically self-distance. So self-distance is kind of just treating yourself like a stranger. But for me, while studying kind of like positive psychology, just psychology and marketing and sociology in general, IU Penn, what stood out for me was like the habits of highly successful people or the habits of anybody that's of higher aptitude that's doing well, that's a disorder in the same way that anybody that say is quote unquote suffering or within DSM or et cetera, right? So anything outside of the average in a way, is it's, a going, it's a disorder. So my thing was, and I, and getting exposed to this was like, just studying the aspects of people that are really on their route to like full self-actualization, like treating that like we, even though we raise them on a pedestal as they should be, that's still a little bit technical of a disorder. So studying that and being able to separate that from the mainstream culture at hand, which I think is very important because once you start to lead like a little bit of a different life, you can't adhere to the rules that people think fall within normalcy. So you have to separate yourself. So there's different little pockets of culture that are relevant and not relevant to you. So my thing was, was like, whether I like it or not, if I have the opportunity to hopefully do something great, like I have to have full respect of that and like study, study the people that are a little bit more relevant to me than they are to like, quote unquote, common population. And then the third thing was uh, an ascent, essentially, if you have to separate yourself, like I look back at Plato's, like the allegory of the cave, right? So a lot of people think of that in two ways. They think of it essentially as you have the people in the cave that are stuck. Then you have the people that see the light. So they get, then get out of the cave. But they're just seeing the kind of the brighter parts of the of the culture. For me, it's the step above, which is basically like once you get out of the cave, you then have to understand like there is no extrinsic value in the light, quote unquote. What really is, is like you need to be the light that's lighting everything up around you. So taking that next step above to completely remove yourself even from constantly chasing a light, but more so just fulfilling your own kind of great potential is always super important to me. But I think it starts with that root of just introspection. Like people are scared of that. And that's fine. You got a lot of internal demons. You got a lot of internal darkness. Like the world itself a little bit is just kind of 
it's kind of absurd. Like I'm an absurdist. So I think you have to define your meaning in everyday life, but you could very easily slide over to like being a nihilist, which you just give up complete hope. So I just think it, we often externalize our power sources, whether that be through our diets, whether that be through our religion, whether that be through our own personal uh, models and values, we place it outside ourselves to exist within this restrictive dogma that either gives us hope or faith, or it makes us not have to think about what it is that we're doing instead of just basically creating our own manifesto to then level up. So for me, like in the same way that quote unquote, the culture had to be created by someone who says that we have to adhere to the rules instead of creating our own personal manifesto and culture to maximize our results. But it all started with being an athlete. It all started with my family and their value systems that they raised me. And then it just became a situation where post-college, I knew I never wanted to work for anybody in contemporary sense and just waking up every day and saying, and just, it's like, I don't have to, I don't have to be part of it. I don't have to be part of this consumption system that doesn't take me to the best account. But I can understand what it's good for and still work within it, hopefully to be of service to other people. Because one day, sooner or later, I'm not going to wake up. So I'm not going to wake, start, wake up every day that I currently have to work towards somebody else's dream. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So you're serving other people. Yeah. Is, is the Ocho system, is this system built around not only the training and the physical aspect, but, you know, this mental, this consciousness, this um, looking deep within and separating your, your, or separating yourself from your thoughts? Is, is that part of this system? Yeah. So basically, there's a few things. I mean, it starts with the physical. So the Ocho system means basically like it's a playoff infinity. So just kind of one number, infinite opportunities. So Ocho, the immediate thing you see, see there is eight. eight you know, kind of working back within like just Eastern, you know, spirituality and cultures, like the way that eight is connected to kind of just like good luck and fortune. And then it's just one number, kind of one number, infinite opportunities, but also one could help others and others can help one. So if we could start to shift from this mindset of self with a lowercase s, this very individualistic aspect to then self with that uppercase where we, the other, the only way we could be whole is that if we recognize ourselves and others, because there's no difference between, and it's not like this kitschy kind of drastic and often new age kind of like all lives matter stuff. Cause that's not the case either, but it's just understanding how we're all part of a respective community. So if I take, if I do what's good for me, that should also be good for you. Essentially this very humanist perspective because I need to act in my best interest because my best interest is typically what should be what benefits benefits us all to the maximum response. So my thing is, if you could if you could take control of your physical health, you'll often see how that delves in everything that's done emotionally, men- mentally, spiritually, et cetera. So it's hopefully and it, it I only work with clients how deep they want to go. But oftentimes it's just it's a wellness system that's predicated in the physical, but then expands to other areas that's simply based upon kind of like this quote unquote ultra philosophy. It like started with the nickname and it kind of grew from there. But yeah, I'm just a firm believer, like, and this is why I like I like the kind of discipline of yoga, not so much in a practice, but its value system. It's just basically that initial controlling of the mind stuff can be done through physical activity. And then you also, the only time you're selfish is in your pursuit of selflessness. So combining those things and bringing that into my personal philosophy, but also starting with the physical, because once you really take that over, the only two places you have to live is your mind and your body. And if you're not, if you're not investing in those two things, what's really good? Like what's really good? Like those are the two things that you control. And then everything else would be kosher in my opinion. Yeah. So this, this, system 
is it is it something that you're you do like in a one on one type of environment in New York? Yeah. So I mean, I mean, I mean, of course, always looking to scale things. But at the end of the day, I like to think of we're too much often involved in a habit and goal oriented system that just leads to like a thinly elevated form of hedonism that always has us chasing something. So instead, I'm very into non-rigid system forms of thinking that can you could meet that you could get people into to help them achieve best results by basically creating like an amoeba-like infrastructure that's ever evolving for that personal individual. But it re- it removes a lot of the other fluff and noise that it just allows you to kind of kind of grow within. So typically, most of my work is well, I'm, I'm based in New York, of course, but. Most of, you know, my work does take me when I'm dealing with clients, you know, around the country or whatever. So. And you do a lot of work with females, right? Yeah. Is that, is that what what you specialize in? Uh, I mean, (laughs) I mean, it just kind of happened that way. (laughs) Uh, It's more of a situation where most of the people that look for trainers happen to be women. I think women right now are very having a resurgence in reclaiming their uh, independence, especially through taking control of their physical and then realizing the impact that just like getting strong has. My thing was, all right, so when I first came, I first started work with Nike 2015, 2014-2015. This one group class was super big. Group fitness was super big in New York. My thing was, was like, I understood where the industry was going and also what it was that I was good at. So my deal was I could always go and teach a group class, but that wasn't my forte. There's a difference between fitness and performance that the bridge is getting closed. But at the time it was a huge blue ocean was that nobody was approaching, bringing performance into fitness. No. And also, so my thing, I wanted to do that strategic, quantifiable, actual goals and strategies that took kind of the way I was trained as an athlete and applied that to common population in ways that will help them reach their goals faster. And from there, understood that uh, people weren't teaching, nobody was teaching people how to run from a sport agnostic perspective. And you know, running was going to have a boom again because we just went through one, not just the Olympic years, but if you look at the data, whenever there's a recession, running gets huge because it's a very meritocratic, it's a very simplistic and it's also communal activity. So running was going to have another resurgence and nobody was really teaching people who wanted to run how to do it from like a base athletic perspective. So to bring in other stuff besides running. So I wanted to bring that kind of like sports, uh, sport conditioning, strength aspects into common pop. So the same way that sports teams have their coaches versus their strength and conditioning coach, I wanted to be that hybrid model for common pop. Um, And then from there, I just wanted women to, I'm one of, I have three sisters. Uh, I've, I, most of my friends are women. Most of the strong support system in my life are females. They, they just get me, their energy is just better for me. And I like, we, I just relate to them a little bit better. My thing was, I thought, I always thought that there wasn't a comfortable space for them within the gym. Like nobody was teaching them how to get strong. They were, they were just siloed. Um, into, a little bit almost objectified. Yeah, it's a sexist. It's a sexist. Like the the gym space for them was very. It was it, yeah, it was objectified, sexist. It wasn't right. So my and, was, and a lot of that training that we're sort of talking about can be very much more based on just what you look like, not, yeah. not the mental or like you're talking about the performance results that you. Yeah, have. facts, and that's what the Instagram age is like. People just want to put these beautiful looking women up on their feeds, so and they want to claim that they're the reason why they look like that. It's 
no, you're not. Half the time it's often genetics. And then my thing was, was like, I want to treat them and push them like athletes. So they often just get more confident in their daily life. And that's why I often be, I've often become such good friends with my clients is just simply because like, I actually do care, care about them. Like we're all we got. So if I could bring out a little bit of your betterness in the gym space, have you be comfortable, have you be vulnerable because I've seen the benefits that it has for me. I think that's super impactful, but I wouldn't say that the strictly female clientele was on, on purpose, but I'm, I'm just here to help whoever comes to me for help. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> um, no, so seriously, the, the, the type of, of training. So if we sort of break it down and go, okay, well, when, when you are working with a, let's, let's talk about females first, but if you're working with a female, some of the common questions that come to mind for me are, do you think women should be worried about lifting weights and, and getting strong? You know, some of these questions, these, these common questions and what, what, what is the sort of, I guess, training program that you would recommend for women out there who want, who may not be training now, but want to get started doing something? Yeah. I mean, first off, the biggest myth that's continuously per, uh, perpetuated is basically that, you know, whatever, the strength training will make you bulky. It won't because a lot of that has to tie into um, the other training that you're doing, the way that you're eating, et cetera. But I guess is first off, a lot of the stuff that I approach is from like a gender agnostic perspective. So whether it's male or females, there's certain things that will apply to both. But a lot of the thing, one of the main things that are super important for women is basically having proper stress reduction strategies that bring out the best in them. What a lot of people don't realize is that the way women respond to stress is a little bit different. So if they're, if they're overly stressed, it'll be harder for their bodies to basically kind of whatever, tone up, shape up, have their best. Get the results. Yeah, get the result. For guys, guys could get away with increased kind of stress because it causes like this little bit of upregulation that in the short term can actually like help spur on your, your best results. But for women, it's not really that way. So for for what I like to just focus on for women is understanding like their overall life to see how can we remove other stressors. And then basically, I never want them to be soreness for me is not the sign of a good workout because the increased volume that often that I need them to do, I need them to be able to feel good day after day to get used to that, like through that general prep phase of them just getting to use the increased yeah. workload. That's something that I've been, I've been reading a lot about yeah. recently is this volume versus soreness, you know, yeah. like three, four years ago, everyone was like, well, if you're not sore the next day, you didn't work out. Yeah. I've never understood that. Um, can you just sort of break down, I guess, volume yeah. just in a simplistic sort of practical manner? So, all right. So the first phase is I want to take you to, I want to, I want to take you through probably from a kind of a restructuring neurologically of, of you. So in the sense of base movement, pattern work, uh, figuring out why certain things may hurt, just understanding how you move, but not giving you too much instruction so that these patterns actually stick and it's not just within your working memory. So going through that from then from there, it's probably a volume kind of conditioning based perspective that just gets you better used to energy utilization. So when I say increase volume, it's the fact that I need you, I need you to be able to increase your work capacity, just simply the amount that you're able to do consistently day after day without, you know, whatever, progressive overload, without making you unnecessarily sore. So especially for women or my clients are like the strategic checkpoints that I have within workouts, whether it's done in your warm up, whether it's done in your quote unquote cool down or certain parts of the workout themselves, they'll help help mitigate your soreness so that you actually you wake up feeling 
you'll start, you'll of course start to look better, but you won't wake up feeling like crap because if you're overly sore, that also will decrease the amount of what we call your NEAT, which is your non-exercise activity kind of thermogenesis or energy expenditure. If I kick your ass in a workout, you got to realize I'm probably going to, I train my clients probably typically 90 minutes to two hours. Most people probably just do 60. But think of when that's 60 minutes, I just want to kick your ass. And if I'm shortening that in 60 minutes, I'm probably not giving you the proper kind of warm ups, et cetera. So I'm trying to increase as much volume as I can without necessarily increasing. I'm saying this is not the way to do it without increase sometimes without increasing the time that I'm actually using you with. You're going to be beat. And then what you do outside of your workouts, what's going to happen? You're probably going to eat a little bit more. You're probably going to move a little bit less. You're just going to be home because it has a cumulative effect, cumulative effect. But my thing is, all right. So if I could strategically increase your volume of work and doing it correctly through say 90 minutes to two hours, I also have you feeling better outside of workouts, reducing kind of your pain. And then you'll, if you're feeling better, you're moving more, you're more conscious of the way that you're eating strictly because you don't now, now you actually don't feel that bad and you, and you don't want to like, let me down, quote unquote, that adds up strategically. So there, I now have an increased volume where I have your conditioning and also your base level of strength. So working on your conditioning and your strength endurance. So keep simple movement patterns, push, press, hinge, et cetera, multiple planes of motion, but also making sure that your conditioning base is there. What I mean by conditioning is basically let's think of working your different energy systems in a way, let's say high intensity, medium intensity, low intensity, getting your heart rate used to those different kind of zones. And then you now have a better basically resting heart rate. And also what they call your heart rate reserve will probably now be better. So the time it takes, if I have you do some exercise, the time it will take your heart rate to then go back down to its base level will now be shorter. So from there, I can now say that your cardiovascular system has improved. That's a probably a two to four week rearing period. And if I have your now, I'm at a point now where I have your, you're moving better, you're feeling better. And I have your just base level aerobic systems and a little bit anaerobic, but mainly aerobic systems where it should be. So I could push you really hard and you'll recover a little bit quicker. So if your research shows that if you have a decent aerobic system, you'll be able to recover from workouts a little bit more efficiently, not and also during the workout and then after. So now I could push you a little bit with strength. I've shored up weak links. I've shored up your movement patterns. You're feeling better. You're moving better. Your energy level is there. You probably lost some weight. And now this is where I push, especially the women to get strong. So now they're comfortable, they're confident. And all you have to do are one or two days of that high quality strength training, which in itself is also a corrective. So that'll also help with some pain stuff that they have if they're, if it's done correctly. And now if they're stronger, they're eating better. They're probably still eating slightly under, under calories, but it's still nutrient dense. They're able to then go do their other workouts more efficiently, whether they're going to the bar, their bar classes, yoga, whatever, et cetera. The strength will transfer to all of that. And now it's a cumulative effect where they're not seeing me all the time, but we're doing the proper things to make sure everything else is else is going well, working in the recovery, you know, working in all that other necessary stuff. But that strength is often a missing link that they don't have. They wonder why, whatever, they're not quote unquote toning up, et cetera. People say toning up, but you're really looking for it to increase two types of tone, typically your neurogenic tone, just basically during that, during the moving that weight, how, how can I contract kind of like neuro, neurologically allows my muscles to quote unquote tone up and also their myogenic tone. Like how do my muscles look toned at rest? And if you, once you get stronger, you'll notice those two things. And then a lot of weight. And once again, connecting back to then the conditioning, what they seem to say now is that weight 
energy is neither created or destroyed. So when you lose weight, where does that weight go? It seems to say a lot of that's through respiration. It's CO2. Comes out, yeah. Comes out. So if I can improve your both sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system where if I'm having basically an alarm reaction when I'm putting you through these tough workouts where your sympathetic nervous system is is uh, is that is now riled up properly, putting your hormones are responding efficiently. But again, remember from that first stage, we want to work on also your parasympathetic. So being able to calm down efficiently, stress reduction strategies, respiration is where it needs to be. Your breathing patterns are a little bit better. In my opinion, once you once you connect all those things together, that's where the that's when of course the weight starts to come off. If that's what you want, but more importantly, you're feeling better, strong, moving better, you're strong. Strength is often a missing link. Strength is you're not going to bulk up. Strength is a corrective, in my opinion. Everybody should be a little bit stronger. And this is not football players squatting five plates or whatever. It's just a base ability to be able to work against gravity. That's all it is. That's all strength is. There's different types of strength with weight and without. But there should be a certain amount of you that could push or pull or move a a, a decent amount of weight, and, and that'll go a long way. So most of your clients, they're, they're doing sort of one or two sessions a week with you and then doing their own training. Is that how it works? Or they- uh, it depends. A lot of them, it depends. If, it, if we're in like, quote unquote, like whatever, for some of the Victoria's Secret uh, ladies, that's, you know, five days a week. Some of them, two to three, depends on who they are. But I like to think of it as cycles, probably certain clients two times a week, uh, certain clients five times a week. It just depends on what it is that they need. But my deal is, especially as, you know, I continue to have my own stuff going on. I I, I like to try to think of myself as a curator. Like if I'm not doing my job properly, if you have to see me all the time, eventually I I, I want my, I want my clients to be free. Yeah. Autonomy. Right. So they should. So they're learning along the way. These principles, they're, they're learning so then they can apply them. Yeah. That's the way it should be. Right. Cause like, it's, just, it's selfish if I want you to be like, I love them to death. Come back, check in with me. We'll have a few sessions here and there. But I like to think more of it as like, I'm a, I'm a curator. So you have somebody to come to me. I'll let you know what it is you need to do, et cetera. But I don't want to, I don't want to see you yeah. all the time. So, I mean, some of this for the, for the listeners may sound fairly complex and it, it is probably because you're sort of speaking about what goes through your mind as you're training. Yeah, this someone, is my bad. Like, right? this is a habit. No, 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 no. habit. Yeah, mind. yeah. But but it's great because it shows just how much deep what's running through your mind when you're training clients is yeah. a lot different than. And I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to put it down, but it's a lot different than jumping into a, a group fitness yeah. F45 class yeah. where you're sort of just pushing weight and no one's really giving you much direction. But for someone who's listening who doesn't have access to you, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, how, how how can they get started? What what would you be recommending for them, like you to to go and you know hit up a, a group class or should, how can they find the right trainer or what? what what's I mean, the starting point. I mean, shameless plug, Nike Plus Training Club app. Check your boy out on there. But uh, oh, so, so no, 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 tell me about that because I haven't yeah, seen it. So what's 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 in the app? What can you do? Yeah, in so the Nike Plus Training Club app. Basically, Nike has created a free app with these workouts that you're allowed that have been created by Nike master trainers such as myself, where you either whether you have access to a full gym or no weights at all, there are plan they basically have strategic plans that were able to guide you through to your goals. So whether that's getting better at strength or that's better getting better at endurance, whether they have everything from mobility workouts to endurance-based workouts to strength workouts, all free of charge with instructions on there so it can guide you through. So if you don't have access to whatever, a gym, or you just at first, a lot of times you just want to get comfortable on your own and you want to like, quote unquote, go through your little bit of a pledge process, 
Uh, there's some great apps out there, you know, Nike Plus Training Club being one of them. So you're in that app, you're doing like strength training or running or? Doing uh, running? It's more, it's mobility, strength, and then strength-based endurance. Okay. And then from there, I mean, my thing is, is like, as weird as it sounds of your overall wellness program, strength, your fitness, fitness is the least important. I know it sounds super weird, but like the fitness is just the base level stuff that gets you to the that quote unquote baseline of normalcy, right? Like the human body's made to move. But it's all the other stuff that you really have to take into account, the stress reduction, the eating, you know, whatever, mindfulness practices, et cetera. So if you if you know that you can't work out that much, if you could put in your effort to those other areas, you'll probably be okay. But it's just take it a step at a time. Like I know it's super cheesy, but like Rome wasn't built in a day. And at the end of the day, you have to think about strategic progressive overload. The issues with uh, oftentimes social media is that you get these very brief and intense insights into the lives of people that are quote unquote working out. So, so what my thing is, is and a lot of people, you know, I try to show this, but maybe I don't. But it's like it's just build up over time. So take it one day. You know what? I'm going to do 15 minutes of, of a workout every morning. So when I'm not going hard and I don't have time, my thing is some days where I just wait, work out for 15 minutes in the morning. That's it. All right. And I know, all right, I'll do that three times this week. I'll do that three times next week. Next week. All right. I'm going to go four days for 20 minutes and then build. So that's build increasing and that volume. And, yeah. Increasing that volume, et cetera. That'll consistently build up over time instead of thinking, all right, I have to go to the gym for 90 minutes today. I have to make sure I do this many sets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Move a little bit more, reduce your stress, eat a little bit better, figure out that kind of holistic integrative plan. But for anybody that's looking to get a trainer, a few things is like make sure they're tracking your progress in some way. Make sure there's somebody you actually get along with because you'll probably you'll probably become very close with them. Make sure that they, they do stuff that's particular to you, not cookie cutter programming. That price point shouldn't be too crazy. And that, you know, they're looking out for you outside of the gym as well and trying to empower you in many ways that they can. But there's nothing wrong necessarily group fitness classes. Go do them. But don't feel don't feel obliged to push yourself always outside of your comfort zone, especially if it could be dangerous for you or promote any injuries. But find that com- what was often I often over overlook is that I had a community, right? Like playing a sport, I always had a community growing up, and I took I take that for granted. Find your respective tribe, find your respective wellness community, and I think that'll hold hold you together until you're okay doing it on your own. Okay, so with regards to, I guess, setting up a, a program, if someone is setting up a program at home and they're yep. using, using an app or, or whatnot, what what sort of frequency should they be aiming for training every single day, every second day? Does it just come back to, you know, seeing if they're feeling sore or how, how would someone sort of work that out? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because one... I mean, research still probably doesn't completely understand why we get sore. And then it's very individualistic. So you have to be able to pay attention to your body, not always the time. I just give heuristics here. They're little rules of thumb that are subject to change, contingent upon you. But basically, again, balancing the difference between kind of volume and intensity. So what what I'll say is minimum, minimum probably should work out a week, probably two to three, right? And then from there, if you could definitely work out more, please do so. Then understand the difference between the intensity and then the volume. So a lot of people have begun to like hit whatever high intensity interval training. And what's funny is, is that again, there's probably about 50 to 20% of people don't respond to hit, which is, which is fine. Like there's different exercises for them to do, but people like hit because you could, 
with that intensity that you're doing, you could do a decreased frequency of the amount of time that you're working out. So I would never suggest somebody do five to seven days of hit. You really probably want to do two to three days because if you have a super busy schedule, right? And then, but, uh, but then from there, if you could, you don't want to be sore every day. So when a lot of people think about over quote unquote overtraining, overtraining is, 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 is technically kind of like a diagnosed kind of situation, but it's not that most people are overtraining is that most people are under recovering. So you have to go really hard to overtrain. Like, yeah, so that's a great point. Yeah. So, so from a recovery perspective, why would someone be not recovering as well as yeah. the next person who's recovering really well? Yeah, yeah. So again, a lot of that is individualistic, but some of that is you're you're not sleeping enough, you're not hydrating enough, you're not eating enough. So it's often very interesting when you look at even in elite athletes, if you look at their body composition, so say body fat percentage, lean mass, et cetera, a lot of the times what often happens is if they are not eating enough, so they are not eating enough calories typically leads to a worse body composition, even if they're working out a lot. So you have to read your body. Working out is a stressor. You have to rebuild your body. The way your body responds to stress, it's either eustress, so those low, those doses of, of an, something quote unquote negative that results in a positive feedback. So think if I give myself typically a low dose of a poison, it's not good enough to kill me, but it can build my immunity up. So if I'm exposed to it later. Or distress is where I'm having too much stress and then my body negatively responds. So stress as an objective measure is not a bad thing. It's how your body's responding to it. So the base stuff for recovery is simply the way you're eating, the way that you're sleeping. And then you can introduce other modalities if you need be. So whatever, cold therapy, if used correctly. I'm not the hugest fan of it. I think it's overhyped, but uh, massage, saunas, et cetera. Do, do you do any of those personally? I personally do. So I'd like to think of recovery in three ways. I like to think of recovery as pain relief. So think of whatever. So either massage or certain supplements that you could use. I like to think of it, uh, recovery strategies is performance enhancing. So think of other stuff that I could do after my workouts that are also added mild stress that don't have me recover in that moment, but have me recover to bounce back. So different. that's basically the difference between rest and recovery. So while I sleep, you're recovering during those moments. But if I go sitting in a sauna or a hot tub post a hard run, that's another mild stress that I'm imposing that allow me once I'm out of there to recover better for performance and adaptations. So I think within the next year or two, we're going to see a resurgence in this. We're going to go back to heat. We're going to go back to heat and proper breathing. Cold and cryo will take a step back. But, like, uh, uh, like infrared saunas? Or yeah, like organs. hot tubs, infrared saunas, like the impact that you'll see possibly on the health, muscle soreness, and also the impact that it has on mitochondria if you impose mild heat stresses post aerobic activity, especially running, are super, are super big. So that, It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Most people listening, you know, are probably thinking, well, I thought, I thought cold and nope. ice was reducing inflammation and helping recovery. Inflammation is good. That's a, another big myth. Inflammation is good in short term. So your body then finds ways to reduce that inflammation, which then allow you to have the positive benefits that you see. The positive benefits that come from working out are due to inflammation. So what are what are these like NFL players and NBA players after their games? They're not doing ice baths and stuff anymore or? They will ice. All right. So you have to look at it as this. It depends on the age of them because that that's really it. So, and again, it that connects back to the third way that I look at recovery, which is, which is simply to, to, re to reduce performance decrement. So if you want to reduce performance decrement, say you've already put in a lot of the work, whether it's track, whether it's basketball, football, you've already put in that work that allowed you to adapt, to be at your peak. 
if you work harder, you're not going to see that much of a performance increase. At this point during a season, what I want to do is what? I want to reduce my likelihood of my performance decreasing, which will be a performance increase because against the overall aggregate, everybody is dropping, dropping back. off. Yeah, so you're sustaining it. So you're sustaining. That's where ice comes into play. Ice doesn't come into play when you're trying to in, when you're trying to increase your adaptations to, to to the fitness. Ice comes into play where I'm like, and this is where you see the benefits of cryotherapy. Now, when I say cryotherapy, cryotherapy is anything that you do use cold with. Now you're seeing the whole body immersion where you would sit in the ice, or you're seeing where you go in a chamber, whatever. So, uh, whole body chamber therapy. Now, if you look at that, a lot of the research shows when you go. Sometimes when you go in there. You, you use that to get through like a camp or very stressful periods. So think during seasons, during training camps, after I've already peaked, now I want a situation where I still have to work out. I still have to play games. I still have to be involved in competition, but I want my, I want to blunt the inflammation response so that I'm not just all beat up after and I can stay at my normal baseline because I'm not really looking to get better. So if you look at the way it's technically used, it's typically a high dose is actually needed of the chambers. And it uh, don't completely quote me on this, but it has basically a short term response, reduces inflammation that it then jumps back up slightly later. And then that'll get and that'll get you feeling a little bit better. But oftentimes when people look at it, there's a lot of hearsay that goes on about cryotherapy. It's a lot of, oh, it'll burn 600 calories in a session or whatever it is, or it'll help you lose fat or help you do this, help you do that. Maybe there's something going on where we think that the athlete is responding in a beneficial way and we're trying to study it. But for the most part, what it looks like now, that helps you get through. That doesn't help you necessarily improve. Yeah, I mean, like, so if we just take some real life examples of quote unquote ice and heat and science is self-correcting discipline. So let's just think about a little bit from where it currently stands. Ice used to be the big thing. Now, if you look at a lot of people that are ahead of the wave, they definitely use use ice to control certain things, but not necessarily utilize it to in, increase performance, in my opinion, or, or at least to have those adaptations to it. So typically you think of ice as a situation to provide some sort of pain relief short term. So if I say I have an ankle sprain, et cetera, and that 24 to 48 hour period, I'll probably use some ice to help reduce that swelling and to, to have pain relief, right? Or if I'm just a little bit older, you'll see whatever LeBron or whomever athletes do it, Kobe, they'll wrap that ice around after a game because at the end of the day, they just want the pain to go away. They're in shape. They're at the top of their um, league. But what they want to do is mitigate pain. So ice basically utilizing, say, to help tendonitis in the short term. Right. But what often people forget is that if I'm not in shape, I don't want to, or I'm, I'm working towards getting in shape. I'm not at my peak. I don't want to blunt my inflammatory response unnecessarily. What I want to do instead is probably enhance that in a certain way. So I sometimes can uh, artificially blunt that inf- inflammatory response that we actually need to get better. And think, so think of it basically as like, if I beat my body up real quick, I want my body to then quote unquote inflame. So have that acute response that turns over as quickly as possible and then reduces so that I could bounce right back in for my next workout. So connecting back to the way that, you know, whatever. And of course, I'm always open to finding better ways. But the way that I treat, quote unquote, my athletes and my clients is I want to find ways to blunt that unnecessary inflammation response or pain in any ways that you can. So 
post-workout, say having proper breathing strategies instead of necessarily throwing somebody in ice can have a better way to activate the parasympathetic nervous system to reduce unnecessary elevated stress or like connecting back to heat. So take example, I ran a couple marathons this year, right? My goal was to do a BQ marathon. I'm a, f- a former football guy. My body's not made for low intensity, steady state running. So my thing was, I want, I call it strategic laziness. I want to do only the things that I should be doing. Nothing extra. Cause I think runners do a lot of stuff that they shouldn't unnecessary mileage. I want to run a BQ Boston qualifier time. Boston qualifier time is basically sub 305 for my age group in a marathon. This is what they look at basically as like a standard. So once you do this, like you're part of a club, essentially. And you hadn't done it yet. I had not done this before. No. And I was like, I called my shot. So I, I, with my buddy was training for the New York City Marathon. I ran with him about 20 miles, but at a pace uh, that was like much slower than him. God, God bless him. Eugene suckered me into this old man running (laughs) lifestyle. So I said, how can I utilize certain strategies to push me to be the best without having to do unnecessary stuff? So I stumbled basically upon like augmentation of your mitochondria through proper, through proper heat. So a lot of times when people will do post long runs, they'll go sit in an ice bath because it'll make them feel better, which is important. But you also have to understand these cumulative effects that you need to impose to have help you perform better. It's not always about feeling better immediately. It's like, how can I feel better a little bit later, but at the same time, still hold on to those performance enhancements. So what actually makes more sense is to go sit in hot water. Go sit in hot water because, you know, whatever, get that blood flow going. And at the same time, it seems to have some sort of effect on your mitochondria that will help, of course, with time to fatigue, energy utilization, et cetera, and hopefully help increase performance. Even if you can't do that, it's probably just a better situation to just chill, eat right, maybe lightly stretch, maybe foam roll instead of going sit in ice. So again, people have to understand why they're doing what it is that they're doing. So take, I like to say one of the systems methods of framework that I often think of, it goes from simple, complex to simple. It's like the hierarchy of learning of like incompetence to competence. When you first start something at first, right? You're probably super cookie cutter and simple. You're like, all right, I'm going to do push-ups. I'm just going to keep it super simple. So you get some sort of increased proficiency where you're still thinking about it, but a little bit less. And that's where people go like to go super complex. They're like, all right, I'm going to do bar class. I'm going to do spinning. I'm going to do yoga. Like I'm an athlete, right? And then it hits them like, this really isn't working for me. And then you go, so then when you're really expertise, you go to simple again. It's like, you know what works, when to use it, how to use it, et cetera. So like a chef, a chef can make the best spaghetti. A chef can make the best apple pie. If you combine those things together, not only do they offset the value of the spaghetti and apple pie, you now have something that tastes awful. So you're trying to combine multiple modalities that are actually canceling each other out and not just canceling each other out, now making a worse product. So with all this hype that we often see, uh, whether it's for the workouts or the recovery game, it's not if you don't know how to use something properly, it may not have, nothing. Yeah, or it may not have those benefits that you think. And I think heat and cold right now are definitely, is definitely one of those areas. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of interesting research out there. So outside of of that, like the the heat and the cold, from a recovery point of view, what what is your stance or recommendations to your clients um, in terms of food? Is there anything uh, of particular focus? A lot of it for food has to do with, especially with the lady or anybody that's eating under under caloric but wants to maintain lean muscle mass. Slightly increasing your protein intake by whatever means is probably one of the best things for you. But it's it's basically staying away from processed foods, excess sugars, or any added sugars. 
making sure to chew your food. That's one of the most overlooked aspects is the digestion starts in the, starts in the mouth, especially with dark leafy greens, because if you don't chew them, it doesn't have the necessary kind of interactions with the bacteria in your mouth to like help increase your nitric oxide production, which I it was just super big, basically just for like improving blood flow at rest. So let's see that. But like always chewing your food and that'll help you actually extract all the calories. So out tell of me food. On, on the dark leafy greens, what about if they've been blended? Blended. <laughs> I like to say with that is like a couple ways you can look at that. You could reduce the amount of time you blend them, add in the greens last. So there is an aspect of chewing to the smoothies or especially if it's a juice. So say I want to use it for ergogenic potential. So the difference between health and ergogenic, ergogenic is actual performance enhancement. So think of what you'll see if you have a tart cherry juice or a beet juice, if you use properly versus just health is like, if I'm eating a little bit better, I'll just be, I'll be healthier, right? It's because of the nutrient density. If you want to just do juices, you should, especially if they're fresh, pre fresh press, you should swish it around in your mouth a little bit before actually swallowing. I know it's super weird, but like if you want to get the best benefits out that of it. That starts to interact with the bacteria. Yeah, in the mouth. So that's super key. But the food, you don't have to overthink it. You have to just really think about nutrient density, increased quality, not eating too late. A simple rule of thumb, if possible, push your first meal back an hour. Okay. So if you typically eat at 9 a.m., eat at 10. Okay. In the morning instead, first do something that will probably improve your digestion for the day. So, you know, Celery juice, again, is going to take off in 2019, but whatever, uh, water with maybe... So celery juice, is that, is that something that you do? I'm <laughs> saying it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So celery, I mean, I've been doing it since I was like a kid, but basically the guy behind the celery juice claims, the medical medium or whatever. I mean, shout out to him. Like he's, he's definitely changing the game. He's done some wonderful things, but if you, and I respect him because he is upfront with his reasoning behind... He'll, he openly admits that he's not sure why it works, but he thinks this dude is something called undiscovered cluster salts within celery because celery is actually a relatively high salt food. And he thinks that that has some sort of impact, the difference between natural salt and added salt. And then he thinks there's def definitely just different certain ways that the body feeds certain viruses feed off heavy metals. But he, he openly acknowledges that this is quote unquote undiscovered and he doesn't- Not he, fully understood yet. Not fully understood, but he knows that celery juice is doing something. In my opinion, what I often, what I think is, it is, is that there is a, there is something there with the salt because the impact and benefit that salt actually has for our bodies isn't completely understood, but it's very necessary for hydration, right? Typically where salt goes, water follows. So I think there is something there for increased hydration very early in the morning. And then probably does something for your permeability along the digestive tract. Not sure what, but I've done it and it does help improve my digestion. And I've seen it connect back with my energy levels throughout the day. And also when I'm tracking my HRV, which is like heart rate variability, that it does help that. So just to, but also what I think it does is like, whether you're drinking water or celery juice, you also have to think about what you're removing. For most people, what will that be? That'll be coffee. That's the key thing, right? With so much of diet. Yeah. Like if you're going to add something in. Yeah. What are you removing? It's like, what am I actually taking out? Now, if we look at coffee, what do we know about coffee? Coffee, some claim it lowers your stomach acid, your HCL. Maybe for some people that are, for some people, coffee actually helps digestion, especially if they have like, whatever, IBS or something. But for most people, what it also does is that if you ask people who don't eat breakfast, what it is that they do in the morning, now correlation is not causation, but they'll say they have coffee. Coffee has an artificial spike in our cortisol, 
And cortisol also gets a bad rap. We need cortisol. It helps with fuel utilization. It helps with wakefulness. But we don't need our artificial spikes when our body already has it. So basically through caffeine, which is a stimulant, we're probably masking our hunger. And then we're ravenous later in the day. We're probably slightly dehydrated, not because we drank coffee, but because we didn't drink water. The, the coffee dehydration myth is a little is a little overblown. It's mainly because we weren't drinking water. So now I have a situation where I've upregulated myself uh, unnecessarily. I haven't eaten. I haven't really done anything to help my digestion at that moment. I'm now ravenous. It's later in the day. I'm probably a little bit increased stress. So if I can remove that, and now I'm more, simply more conscious because if I'm making a decision to drink celery juice in the morning anyway, I'm probably going to make better health isn't, decisions. Isn't that interesting though? Because with this whole fasting type thing, there's probably a number of people out there who are doing black coffee straight in the morning and not eating. Yeah. And that's I mean, taken off. Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's not fasting. That is that like I mean, an intermittent is, type of fasting. It, I mean, it is, it is, but it also isn't because if you're fasting, what you really should be doing is drinking water. Now you're using something else to get you through your day. And again, that's totally fine. But even when you look at through IF, like it'll eventually catch up with you, especially sometimes you don't really want that with women because it, if you look at sometimes in a rat studies with too much IF does to female rats, it basically upregulates them. It makes them a little bit more masculine, which is why you may have some of those positive short-term changes, but long-term it may not be sustainable. Intermittent fasting is nothing more than, you're, than you eating according to your circadian rhythms. Intermittent fasting is very overblown. The way you're supposed to eat is naturally intermittent fasting. So whatever, that's why breakfast is breaking a fast. Now there's certain other ways that you could do it. Now, can I have a smaller eating window? Can I have certain days where I fully fast, et cetera? Well, yes, you can play around with it, but don't get caught in the hype. Like intermittent fasting is nothing more than eating according to the to, to the uh, sleep-wake cycle that we naturally have. So that's all that that is. So in a sense that what that means is basically probably not eating as it gets. So your body has two circadian rhythms, one that responds to light and one that responds to, to food. They should naturally match up. And this is why fasting helps kind of with jet lag. But if I'm just eating really according to my sleep-wake cycle, so that means something probably a little bit lighter in the morning, but pretty solid, keeps my insulin under control, chewing my food, getting food in me, a bigger meal probably towards the middle of the day. Again, either just rule the thumb. And then you probably cut, you're still eating at night, but you're probably cutting back a little bit on carbohydrates later in the day, just due to the way the body responds to it due to the light and time of day, but you're still making sure to eat just solid, healthy food, and then probably not eating two to three hours before bed. So your digestive system has a little bit of relaxation. Uh, You have a growth hormone spike at night, which is naturally connected to ghrelin. So that allows the body to repair without that blood having to go to actually deal with digesting the food, simple stuff like that. You're then going to wake up in the morning, probably feeling lighter, feeling a little bit better. And then you're kind of going through it. So, And then in the morning, like you said, you know, Maybe not eating straight away and having water, hydrating your body. Yeah, I mean, hydrate the body, move a little bit, eat a little bit later. You typically see better results with that. It's not, but again, it's Which not. Which is only a small, change, a small difference, but I imagine there's a lot of people who are eating right before they go to bed yep. and as soon as they wake up. You're, yeah, and think about the impact that it has on the digestive system. When are you actually giving your body time to recover? When are you actually, and I've seen connections with that, again, with HRV. There's HRV, if people don't know, is like heart rate variability. I use something called like WHOOP, which is a band that helps track that. The heart rate variability itself is also connected a little bit to, uh, is connected with digestion. And often see times before my increase in HRV, which is, you know, typically correlated with better, 
increase in HRV if if I'm not eating that long before bed. And so I've seen some other people say the same things. So building on with that. And then think about that. If you do 10 minutes of movement every morning and just really hydrate and have a mindful start to the morning. So you're again, you're not, you're proactive instead of reactive and then have your first meal. That all adds up. It's the little things in my opinion. And I think people try, people don't like to live life in the gray. They, they want black and white. They want to do this, do that. People don't like to live life in a gray because it connects back with our original point. How do you how do you create your own manifesto? How do you separate yourself from, how do you have the critical thinking? How do you separate yourself from the culture at hand, which wants to give you these rigid rules just so they could give you kind of like a magic bullet? So, I mean, it's, you don't want everyone to overcomplicate it, but to simplify, you have to take that raring period of going yeah. the hard. So maybe take us through a day, what you're, when you're in New York, what a typical day of your eating looks like. Yeah. You mentioned beet juice before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is there a lot of beet beets being sold in New York at the moment? Is it, is it, is it trending? Beet. I, think, I think beets are trending. Uh, beets have been, I've been experimenting. I mean, again, my mom made all these juices growing up, but I started experimenting with beets in college super heavy. I had my, I always had my own juicer and blender in school. I mean, a day for me is wake up food wise. I actually don't eat that much. My friends hate me for it, but I wake up, hydrate heavy, you know, get that water in. Then I'm probably juicing something. So whether it's probably, it's probably a celery, like an hour or two after awake, it's probably celery juice, ginger, and lemon. So doing something to to like light up kind of for my digestive system. Then I make a smoothie. I, I take that with me on the go, probably have that an hour or two later. So my deal is in the morning is like, I'm not trying to, I used to try to get a lot more of my calories in the morning. I kind of shifted away from that. It's uh, I, I'm, I get majority of my calories in before 4 p.m. now, but my morning is focused on basically activating my digestive system, not trying to overwork it and just basically flushing out and making sure I stay hydrated. Then I probably have my biggest, I probably have like two meals between 12 and 4 p.m. I probably go to like Jack's wife. I probably have a nice like veggie bowl. I probably have some sort of curry What's bowl. Is that yeah. yeah, there's two lo- three locations now. There's one. What's so, it called? Jack's Wife's Jack's Frida. Wife Frida. Yeah, Frida, yeah. That I think I've been to the one. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's three locations now. Shout out to Dina. So I'll probably have something from there, or just like whatever, a oh. curry bowl, some vegetables, yeah. the good stuff, the good stuff. What yeah, would you throw in food. your um, smoothie? My smoothie typically is uh, so I don't do that much spinach or kale actually because like just the amount of iron in that kind of messes with me. But I do like red, red oak leaf lettuce, arugula, half a banana, blueberries, walnuts, Brazil nuts, uh, some sort of probably like a plant-based protein, uh, cordyceps, probably some ashwagandha, some chia seeds, and like either like water or some non-dairy milk, and then like some essential amino acids. Yeah, beautiful. So that like, sounds I good. <laughs> I need to find. I haven't had a smoothie is, in is Sydney. Actually, you haven't had one I yet? need to get one today. I'm gonna yeah. go to Orchard Street. Yeah, see what's that. good with it. Is the ashwagandha? Is that a? Um, is that for the mind or? It can be, but for me, it's more like I'm fascinated by adaptogens. I mean, it's a little murky the research on it, but it's basically like a stress reducer for me. Cordyceps. There's some research that connects that back. I go heavier on cordyceps when I'm endurance training because there's some yeah. research that connects back to improving. Had endurance. a guy on the podcast previously who. Um, like harvest. Oh, really? And yeah, sell it as, as a mushroom powder. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I do anything that kind of likes cons, cons me down. I don't, I don't need to be upregulated anymore. I'm not like a big maca guy or anything like that. So that's what I use that for. And then I probably have one or two shakes during the day. 
dinner super light is probably like so the shakes is like a, a plant based protein shake sort of thing. Yeah, what like a pea protein or it depends. Or- in the morning, I want something a little bit more slow digesting, so that's probably a little bit closer to pea. Yeah, post workout typically want something a little bit faster, so I probably have a mix of rice and pea or rice and hemp, etc. To kind of Think of rice. So basically, think of pea protein as like the casein protein of the plant based world. And Slow think of, release. Yeah, I think rice is more like the whey protein a little bit. I, I throw in essential amino acids because there are some. I mean, this is overhyped. There are some amino acids that quote unquote plants miss. You could tip, you'll get enough if you eat enough. Like it's an overhyped thing. I openly struggle just because I'm on the go of eating enough. So I'll just throw that in because I know, especially like leucine. I know that's they're just, I feel the difference when I'm getting enough of that or as well as like lysine and carnitine. Like I know those are big for me. So I'll just try to fit those in as need be. It's pretty, it's pretty easy just to throw some aminos. In. Yeah. And I mean, like amazing. you said, it's, it can be overhyped, particularly if you're not a train, you're not really physically active and you just, you're, yeah. you're just chilling and eating. Yeah. You don't need to really be thinking about aminos. Yeah, facts. <laughs> That's what a lot of people forget too, is like the people that are actually more susceptible to nutrient deficiencies. And they just coined this term. I can't, like, there's been a lot of research on, I can't remember the exact term, but athletes and people that are active are more prone to nutrient deficiencies. So of course they got to do those little bit of extra things to stay on top. Most people should just be eating well and eating enough Mm -hmm. calories and they'll be fine. Like you're not really, most people aren't working out enough or that much. Uh, most people like really don't need to do all the all the crazy overhype stuff. So it's really like supplementation is really for like strategic populations. Yeah. Is there any other supplements that you would regularly take? I take a B12, like a uh, yeah, a mix. Uh, what else do I take? I take. I definitely do take carnitine. I take the essential amino acids. I take uh, cordyceps, magnesium, sometimes calcium, zinc. I mean, my stuff is I'll cycle it. So it just depends on a vitamin D. But the sun here is the, be- is the best performance. I swear, it's the best <laughs> performance enhancer. No, I swear, whenever I come, to, especially I take these trips to sunnier climates and I'm out in the sun, like my the pain relief, but reducing that I have, like the sun is just crazy. Sydney gets a lot of sun. It's so good. Vitamin D is an interesting one because, you know, a lot of people around the world, vegans or not, are deficient in vitamin D. Yeah. It's not just a vegan thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're definitely looking to revamp the amount that they suggest for needed vitamin D intake. But for that, it's really the best thing is the sun. That's why I'm not trying to start a whole epidemic here, but it's just like sometimes before you put a sunblock on, give yourself five or 10 minutes with that before you put the sunblock on. Like vitamin D is so important. It's so important. And it turns, it's, it's like, it's also a hormone in our bodies yeah. to an extent, and especially for men, it's connection to like, uh, whatever, testosterone, et cetera. Like you need the sun. But yeah, I mean, for me, supplements are, I'm always experimenting with, with new things. My, my house, probably apartment, I don't have a house in New York. My apartment is like an apothecary. So I'm always D- uh, dabbling, dabbling, dabbling yeah, yeah. stuff. And what about for dinner? So you, you've taken us through sort of yeah, a yeah, dinner, bunch of vegetables, probably sweet potatoes. I love chickpeas. I love curry, curry chickpeas, all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's maybe some brown rice or white rice too. I don't. I think white rice gets a bad track as well. Often easier for other people to digest. But yeah, carbs treat me super well. Like I'm just you feel I'm, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm able to. And as long as I'm chewing my food, I'm able to kind of move on carbs. So I probably have a moderate carb, moderate protein, moderate fat diet. I'll play around with it, though, contingent upon certain aspects of my training. If I'm doing more endurance-based work, I'll, I'll have some, you know, 
higher fat, low carb kind of cycles just to get my body used to kind of that fat oxidation, energy utilization. But for the most part, keep it simple, keep it super clean and then just make sure like I allow myself to be hungry. I think I think it's important, but just to make sure that I do my best to eat to eat as much as I should. But don't feel like I should be forced into eating, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so how long have you been living in New York for? Four years now. Wow. And uh, what, what are your favorite places to go and eat? The Finch is Michelin place in next to in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn. Love it. I think the Brooklyn food scene is super underrated. Do you live in Brooklyn or you live in Manhattan? I live in Bed-Stuy, yeah. yeah. I like it. It's got a little bit more character. Reminds me of what's important. Like, you know, I see kids walking around with like chips and soda in the morning or just chips or just sugar, uh, just stuff that they probably shouldn't be eating. So it reminds me of what's it's like important. It's out of the bubble. Yeah, I guess it, like New York could really be a bubble. In Manhattan, what about like uh, Le Botanese? Super good. My favorite smoothie spot is this place, Mood Hafla, Soho. Candle 77 or whatever, Uptown yeah, is pretty good. There. That's solid. Good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, Jack's wife, love them. Spring Natural is pretty good. Spring Place, it's like a members only spot, but it has actually a really good plant based menu. There are a few, I mean, there's no Erewhon in New York, unfortunately. Oh, God, the Erewhon. Erewhon in, uh, in <laughs> Honey Brain. LA is good. so good. So it's a uh, huge kitchen, I guess. It's solid. Have you, have you been to a place called Season Vegan? No. In Harlem? Not. No. Oh. I think you need I don't to check like, it out. but uh, maybe it was another place. There's another place in Harlem that was like, I don't like places that try to be non-vegan restaurants. Yeah, okay, I yeah, might yeah. just make some good ass vegetables. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you don't, <laughs> it shouldn't need to be. I don't want like tempeh. I don't want, that's not me. Like I'm just like, I just want plants. Like that's just See, like your like. beans, chickpeas. Yeah. Like give me the dark leafy greens. Like give me some broccolini. Give me some bok so choy. Keep it pretty simple. Yeah. That's my thing. Like I, I like to cut out the, I like to cut out the fluff. So even, I mean, a good example is, even when I'm here, like I find what I like, I know what works and I stick to it. Like I went to Bill's like three times. Like it's just like, what, what were you ordering at Bill's? They had like the kimchi, kimchi bowl. Okay. And then it's like kimchi, like cauliflower rice. And then I ordered like the side of broccoli and threw it in there. There's some good stuff. Some avocado. They have like this weird sriracha there that I've never tasted before. Yeah, it was wow. really good. But yeah, it's just like Bills is very popular with Chinese. Chinese I can see that. Yeah, because I saw that a lot actually. Yeah, you see that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's not plant based. Why they go there is not is not because they're going there for the plant based food. They're going there for Bills eggs. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's some somehow somewhere in the past, Bills eggs became very famous in China. Sick. We've sort of just covered most of the food stuff. We're getting towards the end. Of this episode, I think I'm going to have to have you back on the show a few Dog, times. I'll be back, got, man. There's so got, much you can talk about. We got about. so like, much. I got new, gig, I got new gigs. <laughs> yeah. I can talk about Nike stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything. So just quickly, from a from a mindset, a mental perspective, do you are you always super positive and and at, in terms of wanting wanting to train and having the motivation to train? And for anyone listening who finds themselves waking up not motivated to train. Do you have any tips for them to to sort of address that and help overcome that? I mean, not even just training, just life in general. I think there's too much of an emphasis on like positive thinking that leads us outside of understanding our different emotional aspects. That isn't a good thing. Like we wake up and we automatically think that we should just be happy. Like happy is just this feeling that we have, right? When really, I mean, you have to define what happiness is for you. And my thing is, again, it goes back. It's okay if some days that you don't want to train, but again, or do anything that is constructive. Like let's take training, let's t- take training and turn that into anything that's constructive. So 
one, I think you have to acknowledge the fact that some days it's okay not to feel good. What's not okay is not to actively figure out either why and however long that takes. For me, it's an ever-expanding process. Again, I'm somebody that skews towards melancholy. I'm somebody that again, is, you know, in that absurdist mentality, like I'm constantly defining what's important in my own life. And not many people really understand that way of living, which is totally fine. And everybody wants to tell you that you should just be happy. And I I, I come from a privileged background. I'm totally fine with that. And, but a lot of my friends, and I've noticed a lot of people our age or whatever, millennials and the generation above and below that struggle with what they think, how they should feel versus how they actually do. So what I think you need to do is take a step back and possibly understand why you're not feeling that way. And then to take those steps again to constructively build through that. So what I basically like to do is either certain gratitude exercises or again, mental contrasting is one of my favorite things, which is basically when you have a goal, you think about what could possibly go wrong. So you give yourself that mental dosage of stress, but you now can control that and say, okay, when that comes, how can I now build and get over that? Or if a situation where you, you're just not having the best day. And that's totally fine. I think you accept that. I think you live in that feeling because oftentimes the only time, the only reason it lingers around is because you try to run from the fact that it's even there. And it's that little fucking thing on your shoulder the whole day that you've been trying to run from and you haven't given it attention. So it's going to stick around just tapping you. But you look at that in the face and you understand why you may be feeling that way. And then that's often the easiest way to then overcome it. So you also should treat yourself sometimes like a stranger or your best friend that you love. And but you now have a little bit more insight into that stranger because it's you and give however you would give a stranger the advice that you want them to use. Tell that to yourself and implement that into your daily life instead of thinking like, I'll just force myself to be happy or I'll just gut through it. No, it's like take a step back and you can't force. Once again, you can't force happiness. You can't force inspiration. It's something that you get set up an infrastructure for that hopefully then come to you. But the best way to do that sometimes is to take a step back, live in that moment and just kind of center yourself in love and forgiveness and kindness. And then you'll feel, start to have that feeling start to evaporate and then you can start to move forward. But too often times you just, it's a, it's, I don't know, maybe it's an American thing, but like we just try to struggle through. Like we love the underdog, like Americans love Rocky. Right. But like, Rocky won. We didn't know if there's going to be a sequel yet, but if you look, Rocky won. Rocky lost. Rocky, Rudy only got in for one play. It's like we like to, we love to raise up the struggle when it's like, no, you keep that struggle as short lived as possible so you continuously level up, but you just acknowledge it for what it's worth and then set aside those practices that you know will help you get outside of that. So, you know, whatever, LeBron, Michael Jordan, Kobe, every coach, every company didn't wake up, doesn't wake up each day feeling its best, but it has probably certain checkpoints that it could put in to make sure that this day is a little bit better than it would be if you lived in that moment of sadness or melancholy or et cetera. I'll I'll just give that advice because I know I've dealt with my own mental hardships and it's not a situation where like uh, people like, oh, you're always so positive. So this, so that. That's not how the case that it may be. We're all human. Yeah. You, I'm, I'm a little bit more resilient because I've been through a lot of stuff, for lack of a better term, and I'm constantly figuring out how to deal with my own demons and mental mind stuff to keep persevering through. But it's find those strategies that work for you. Just in the same way, when a company, when a company, when you go to work and a company has an emergency, they have protocols that they know how to implement to be able to build through them. You're your first business and your first company. Like, what are your protocols? How do you set up your kind of, uh, how do you set up your strategy for best results? And it first starts with acknowledging why it's actually occurring and how you can uh, step outside of it. 
beautifully put. You know, <laughs> like it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. But then you you need to spend time exploring yourself. Yeah. It's not okay not to acknowledge that. And it's not okay to simply think that you should be okay. So forget what other people tell you. Forget people that say, oh, you should just be happy. Oh, you have a great life. Oh, you should just be doing this, doing that. Your world is your world. Yeah. And I guess if you're, as a friend, if your friend is not happy, you're better off, again, reiterating. It's okay not to be happy. But yeah. And work with work them. Out, let's them. work out what's going on. Yeah. That's the thing. Like the worst thing you could tell somebody is just be happy. You're fine. You're overdoing this or you're, you're just being emo for no reason. Da, 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 da. Don't do that. Just, just don't. I mean, there's a, there's a word for it. It's a made up word, but it's called a uh, sonder, which is basically the, the, the realization that everybody around you, even if they're only in your life for a fleeting moment, has a, has a life as complex as yours. So think about it for a second. When you walk outside and the amount of people that you see, they may just be a blip on your radar, but they're living a life. And this is what we often forget. And this is why I think there's a lot of kind of inequality in the world, but they're leading a life has as many problems and as many joys, et cetera, just as complex as yours. And you would not want that person to come up to you if you're having a bad day and say, just be happy. So to, so, to, so to ignore the complexity of each other's life and just to simply give directives instead of being constructive and helping helping others overcome things just due to the experiences that you've had or because all, sometimes all you need is an ear is one of the most selfish things that you could do. Right. So instead of doing instead of being selfish, like just take the time to just be be of assistance. So if you can't have if you don't know what to say, just let that other just just let that other person know that you're there, which I think is very important. Because at my times when I was at my lowest, the people that I thought that would be there for me weren't. And that's one of the worst things you could experience. And I think, yeah, you've spoken to the point, but the more you sort of explore yourself, almost you become better at helping someone else. Knowing yourself is knowing is knowing others. Yeah, it's 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 super hard to serve someone else if you haven't spent that time working on your own self. Yeah, because then you're a charlatan, you're a snake oil salesman. You you just like at the end of the day. So take a coach. If a coach hasn't now, oftentimes the best players can't be the best coaches, but the best coaches have known the game in some capacity, and then they study it. They 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 only they study also how they relate to the game in which they're looking to coach. So you understand that their their strengths. So at the end of the day, like if you're not studying yourself, if you're not doing that introspection, then I don't think you can necessarily talk about it. Now I want to I want to just touch on a couple of last sort of bigger picture type type issues. And at the at the start of this, you spoke about being Black American. Yeah, and, yeah. And we hear we I had Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, mm. who is doing a number of initiatives in the black community in Brooklyn yep. to help educate them around food choices. In, in summary, what's the current state, I guess, of, of health in America? And if you were going to, in short, describe how you would like to see things change to, to help solve that sort of health crisis, what would you say? I mean, the current state of health in America, what are the latest headlines? What are they saying? Americans are getting shorter and fatter. Uh, obesity rates are increasing or if not the same as they were. But what do you see? What do you see, right? You see basically these reverse wellness ghettos, for lack of a better term, et cetera, the people that already have access are getting increased access. And now it's just this affluent buzzword where we're sectioning off the people that need it the most with artificial barriers to entry that are often done through monetary purposes. So my thing is that I want to be basically increase value and access without actually necessarily having to increase price. 
So then the deal because I have a few different initiatives that, I, that I'm working on. But long story short is that like health in America, we're not actually solving the problem. We're just making it pretty. We're making it pretty by raising up the people that are like having this new age kind of health renaissance. But at the end of the day, that could make you ignore what's actually going on. My thing is, is like I want to and I, I'm, what, I'm, I'm, I'm 28. I'm still trying to figure this out, but I'm more of like a Booker T. Washington. These are basically people that were within whatever black liberation, but then Marcus Garvey, like I want to work within the existing infrastructures for best results. I don't think that we, at the end of the day, like, I just want to make capitalism a little bit more conscious on a few different levels. One, starting with self. If you wake up every day and have more of an investment in your particular community, instead of being transient, is that if you say like, I'm going to make better choices, also purchase and behavioral, and then get involved in your community, turning these micro communities once again into basically self-serving. So I've started something with my friend called, uh, Olivia Perez called System of Service, which basically like bridging the gap between brands and also people to make community service more actionable, to make it just more tangible and, and, and it, it could still be fun and of very high value. And then from there, I think you still could utilize existing infrastructures and businesses to then promote these causes for best results. So whatever, I get to work with Smartwater, I get to work with Nike, I get to work with Woob, I get to work with all these other brands that want to champion these initiatives, So, which I think is super important. So for me, it's like updating the modern concept of what wellness is. Right now, wellness is super buzzy and it's super kind of selfish in a sense of like, it's making sure I get my green juice. It's making sure that I get a massage or I get a face mask instead of wellness for me is a multi-pronged structure that of course starts with you taking care of yourself, but then expanding that circle out. So it takes into account the community aspect. It takes into account the food and social justice. It takes into account of the physical activity, but it's now an ever expanding bubble. And I don't take for granted that I now, I have the ability to be able to, to, to do this. And I want to push the envelope in, the, in this regard. So even in the private sector, and of course, connecting back with the public, but right now what I could do is work more within the private sector. It's improving health by, help, by helping other people have access to it and just under, and a base level of understanding. Because I take for granted, like I live in this, I wake up and I just, I'm thinking about this constantly, like this is what I love. This is what I'm here for. And it's for me to give give other people access to what I've had access to is to give other people my dad's knowledge and to give other people to understand it, just have access to water, have access to workouts. Like with Nike, I did this outer burrows program where we went, we went, got out of Manhattan. We went to Queens, we went to the Bronx, we went to Brooklyn and we w- went to these high schools and middle schools and worked with these kids and not only got them more active, but also get uh, had workshops for them to just understand their self power and what it means to take control of your health. And again, if I, if I'm changing that one kid's world, I'm changing that one kid's mind. I'm changing somebody's world. So if I could do that, if I figure out ways to scale that and then get people just to think more mindfully, I think we'll go a very long way. But an aspect of that is is disrupting the modern sense of consumption. And I'm fine with that. Like, I'm not saying I'm trying to I'm trying to fire the first shot of a revolution, but I'm, I'm I'll fire the first little shot at you to help, to be that mosquito that helps you understand that maybe there is something bigger outside of this. And I'll use the access that I've been granted that a lot of people don't have to kind of to kind of make sure that everybody gets on board to the best of my ability. So those are my goals. And then for me personally, what I look to do this year, I'm going to shift back more into just edu- like I've grown not my personal brand, but I think I've grown enough of my persona in the area is like 
this mysterious cool kid that's popping up everywhere, but like still is is actually getting stuff done from a science based perspective. Now it's more of a situation of creating a strategic infrastructure that provides you with empirical data that you can actually put into your daily life. So I don't want, it's not just a situation of you following my life anymore. It's a situation of me giving you the actual tools. items to actually help improve your life. So that's really the next wave because I'm, I'm not doing that. If I'm there improving your toolkit, like. So is that top secret or are you work, you're working on something <laughs> for 2019? I'm working on a lot of stuff for 2019. <laughs> 2019 is going to be a crazy year. I've got a, a couple new gigs that I'm going to gonna be announced soon. A couple new projects. And at the end of the day, like I'm just ready to work. Like these past 20 days, like I left, I was at my wits end in New York at the end of this year, December 17th or whatever. And I, and I knew that I would have, I was going to leave on December 18th and I was going to, I've never taken a vacation before ever. It's the first time I've had a vacation. And I said to myself, I'm going to take the time to, to sit down and not just formulate, but also plot out what I'm looking to do and just get reinvigorated and just take this next step. Because with the stuff that I have coming up, with the opportunities that I've now been given, with the new positions that I now have, it's no longer like relying on talent. It's relying on consistent habits to be my best because I just won't be letting myself down. I'll be letting companies down. And more importantly, I'll be letting you down. So now it's really just time to level up and just to understand that, you know, I mean, it's like Batman had to grow up eventually and I want to grow up without having whatever my parents killed or whatever <laughs> happened to Batman. So that's kind of the wave. It's um, incredible, man. It's incredible that at, you're only 28. Yeah, I'm an old man. You've already now, found man. this purpose. Yeah. And I can feel, I can feel the passion. The last thing I wanted to just chat, chat about quickly was, I guess, the pillars of a plant-based lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you ever think about the animal ethics or the sustainability sort of pillars, um, which maybe weren't initially why you found this lifestyle, but are now no doubt you would come across them in things that you read. And I'm sure yeah. when you think about the food that you eat. Yeah. About them? Yeah. I mean, I think sustainability is a big, but I think the first thing you have to sustain is a human body, but I think sustainability is something super huge. Animal rights a little bit, Again, the animal rights, I, I, I don't want to bring race into this, but animal rights thing gets weird because it's just like, there was a time period in, in American history and we're still struggling with this where, where like Black Americans were thought as a three-fifths of a person. And it's just like, food for me is still a way for not just Blacks, but also any subjugated population to take their autonomy back. So you look at basically, you know, whatever, the slave trade a little bit, and it was just a situation where just it's I don't know, it's just a difficult situation where like food and crops and certain aspects were like the currency in which things flowed. And nowadays it's the same way, but it's just in a, in, a, in, a, in a different conceptualization. So it's like, can we as people provide ourselves increased liberation through our diet? And I think we can just due to the research that's often linked with the manner in which food impacts the brain, the mind, the body in general, et cetera. And then you also then connect that back with everything that's going on. Like, it's not that there isn't enough food for everybody in the world. It's just that everybody doesn't have access to this food. It's not that no everybody should stop eating meat. It's just that if we want to think about the impact that we're having on our planet and the sustainability aspect. It's not, it's a situation where these, some of these animals, you know, pigs, et cetera, are a lot smarter than we previously may have thought. And it just becomes a situation of, you just have to start to treat things a little bit more humanely. And I think there is an aspect of this where it's not by accident that when you start to, 
not necessarily become enlightened, but look for better ways of living. And a lot of disciplines, religions, et cetera, it often becomes a situation where you have to abstain from eating meat. Now, if you want to take this from an energy perspective, that's more than fine. But maybe it's just a little bit of perspective where you just start to understand a little bit more about the way that you should just be treating your body and also your relation to the rest of the world. Like we don't exist outside of the earth. Like we, 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 it's not a situation where there's people and then there's the world. Like there's a natural connection that we have with the, the earth and there's a natural kind of symbiosis, right? So take, for example, why the Japanese do forest bathing, right? They'll sit in a forest and be in contemplation because there are essential oils that are released by plants in the trees that can help with stress reduction and certain other things. Now, if that wasn't the case, if we were just had complete dominion over the world and it wasn't something that actually serves to enhance us in any way, there wouldn't be any sort of kind of symbiosis between us and the world. So we have to treat this with a certain level of respect. And with the consumption of these foods, because we're actually taking away from, quote unquote, the earth, I think you have to be just a little bit more mindful about how you relate to that. And this is just farming practices in general. This is the American EPA, you know, rolling back on water regulation, which some argue was connected to the recent E. coli outbreak for romaine lettuce. So it's just like for the whole food system in general is that we need to just be more cognizant of the way that we're utilizing the relatively some of them finite resources that we have. So regardless of your method of eating, whether it's plant-based, whatever, whether it's paleo, which could also be plant-based too, whether it's, I don't care, whether you're being hype over that, this new carnivore diet that's out. (laughs) So you have to understand the way you relate with with the world and, and the buying practices, but sustainability, animal justice, but more importantly, just human, human justice is, is one of the main reasons that we should look at the way that we consume food. Well, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. And you know, I just want to thank you for coming on and just sharing a ton of wisdom. I've, yeah, I've learned a lot and I'm sure, that, <laughs> I'm sure the listeners have. It's going to be an episode where people are going to replay it, replay it <laughs> and take notes. So, um, so if, if, if folks listening have not connected with you before, how can they find you? Where can they find you on social media? Yeah, yeah. Find me... Uh, Find me on Instagram at Ocho System. Website's about to be up. It's just joeholder.info. And yeah, just shoot me an email, shoot me notes, connect with me over on Twitter too at, uh, I guess, J underscore Holder OS. But yeah, thank you all for listening. I know I probably rambled a lot, so sorry for that. You did. I appreciate you. You did awesome. (laughs) It's been an absolute pleasure. Look forward to catching up with you in uh, New York. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, friends. Simon here. Wow. What did I tell you? An absolute wealth of knowledge. Now that we have laid many of the foundations and you've heard Joe's story, I will be 100% having him back on the show at some point later in 2019, probably when I'm next in New York, to dive further into training specifics. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes or post a story review on Instagram. Both Joe and I would love to know what you thought. And I know it was quite the long episode, so thank you for all of you that stuck around to this point. That's it for today. I'll see you in the next episode. Peace.